I'm praising the, the Lord with you this morning. We have a great God and His Son, who is God as well, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal, seated at the right hand of God. I am found in Him. Are you found in Him? Not much of a response there. Are you found in Him? Amen. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, thank You that we have a place we're united together in Christ. Those of us that have Jesus as our Savior, we are hidden in Christ, in your presence, at your right hand. In this we find the greatest solace. Help us this morning as we look at your word that we would be directed to you, that we would recognize that we are empty without you. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. There are circumstances in life that require big decisions. There's a job offer for you, but it requires you to move out of state. You've outgrown your house, and you need to look for a house that accommodates your family. All kinds of big decisions come across our path on a semi-regular basis. And sometimes we think that doing God's will is all about these big decisions. And I want for us to recognize this morning that God's will is not necessarily found in its entirety or even mostly in those big decisions. When we think about God's will, we must recognize that they are, there are more of these decisions that are life-changing. Truly, living in God's will is about making choices in the simple parts of life. Living in God's will is about making choices in the simple parts of life. We want to try to answer three questions this morning about God's will. Now, the reason that we're talking about God's will is not because I thought, hey, it'll be a great idea, we'll talk about God's will. But as we open up our study of the book of Colossians, there are a couple of passages that are begging for us to talk about God's will. First of all, in verse 1, Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So he starts this book off by saying, I've been sent out by God, not because I decided to do it, because it's a, I thought it would be a really great idea, but in fact, I was sent out by God because God thought it was a very good idea. It's God's will that I do this. And God's will isn't only for the super saints. It's not just for the apostolic uh, clients or the apostolic representatives or the really, really important people, the pastors. God's will is for everyone, right? Take a look at verse 9. When Paul starts to pray for the the believers in Colossae, he's praying that they would be absolutely, entirely controlled by knowing God's will. Look at what he says in verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. What was he hearing about? That they were 
faithful to God, that they had come to faith through the gospel, that they were God's people, and that love was pouring out of them. When we heard about all the things that were happening in your life, we started praying and we haven't stopped praying. Here's what we prayed. And to ask that you might be filled, filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The word filled there is the same word used in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. You remember what it says. And do not be drunk with wine in which is excess or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The, the idea is that of being controlled by something. And his prayer for the Colossian believers, and I'd say for us as well, is that we would be controlled by knowing God's will. This is why we're talking about God's will, because this book is crying out for us to talk about it. So here are three questions about God's will this morning. Here's the first question. Very simple, straightforward. Is God's will knowable? Is God's will knowable? Well, we just read verse 9. Verse 9 says this, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled, controlled, with the what? Knowledge of what? His will. The knowledge of His will. God's will is, in fact, knowable. I already referenced Ephesians 5.18. The verse right before it is this, in Ephesians 5.17, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Does God give you a command like Ephesians 5.17 is, do not be unwise, but understand. That's a command. Does God give you a command that you cannot do? No. Well, yes, I can't do it, but by His grace I can. God is calling us to do something. And that is to know His will, to understand His will. So is God's will knowable? Yes. yes. This is a very simple but very important question. Here's a second and also important question. What is involved in God's will? Now, to actually answer this in its entirety would take us the rest of our time that we're on earth. But, we're going to narrow it down to four different areas this morning. What are some, some areas or elements involved in God's will? Here's the first one. God's will involves trusting Him. God's will involves trusting Him. I want to have you turn in your Bibles, please, or open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. God's will involves trusting Him. So, God's will is knowable. Good. We, we know the answer to that first question. The second one, what is involved in knowing God's will? The first one, first element that we want to recognize that is controlling our understanding of what God's will is or what is involved in God's will, it's trusting Him. That's a very simple thing to say. Trust God. But what about when you get that news. What news? You can fill in the blank, but I'll just give you a few thoughts for your consideration. You just found out you've been diagnosed with cancer. Trust God. You just found out they're making budget cuts at work. Your salary has just been quartered. Or they've taken a quarter away. Trust God. Hmm. Budget cuts got worse. Your job is being eliminated. Trust God. It's easy to talk about trusting God. 
when everything's going okay. When I have three meals a day, or seven, depending on your, your particular issues. When you have heat, that you turn it on, it comes on. You turn on the light switch, the light comes on. Everything's good. Start the car, it starts, you get gas in the tank. Everything's good, trust God. But what about when, when bad news comes? You're in Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people. They've come out of Judaism. They've trusted the high priest of their confession, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. They've recognized that Judaism doesn't bring you to heaven. It only tells you of your desperate need that you can't fulfill the law and that there's a holy God that requires a sacrifice and that sacrifice is a pure, perfect lamb. And it's only fulfilled when the pure, perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is sacrificed. So they've turned from Judaism, they've turned to Jesus Christ. And when they made that profession of faith, when they made that confession of faith, they experienced persecution. Persecution that made them actually have to leave their home. They, they lost their goods. They, they were hurting. Some were jailed. They were visiting each other and caring for one another in the midst of this deep persecution. And now this same church has a second wave of persecution. The first wave died down, second wave comes, and they are starting to twist in the wind. Why? Well, the faith isn't as new as it once was. They don't have maybe the same enthusiasm that they once had. They hadn't been as diligent about embracing their, their God, maybe as they, they had at one point. They, they weren't really diving in deeply to what God had revealed. They weren't building one another up in the faith as they really should have. And so their, their capacity, their intensity had waned and persecution comes again and a different response this time. They started to wobble at their knees. And their hands started to hang down. It's kind of like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you know what the author of Hebrews, God, says to them? Trust God. That's what he says. He says, trust me. No, he doesn't say it that simply. He starts off and says, I've revealed the truth to you. That truth is in the person of Jesus Christ. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He mediates a covenant that's better than the old covenant. He has a priestly ministry that's better than the old priestly ministry. He is the very best. Trust Jesus. I have already spoken to you. I've given you word on this. And here we are in Hebrews chapter 10, and he addresses them again. He's been telling them the whole time, look at Jesus. Trust Jesus. There's no better way. Verse 32. He says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, when you came to the place of understanding who Jesus is, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle So people were watching you while you were twisting in the wind. 
by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And so not only some of them suffered, but they also saw their friends, their brothers and sisters in Christ, suffering. Verse 34. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. What is the will of God? Keep looking at Him. How do I know? He says, verse 37, For yet a little while... And he who is coming will come. And he will not tarry. Wait for the promise. Wait for the unveiling. Wait for the revealing of the Son of God from heaven. He's coming. Verse 38. Now the just shall live. How? The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. He says, says, you're not of that kind. You're not the one that says, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus when everything's going okay and difficulty comes. And you say, I've got a better plan. That's not you. You're not the one that that believes and then draws back to the perdition, destruction, complete and utter disaster. You're not that person. We are the ones who believe to the saving of the soul and that kind of belief endures forever. The just shall live by faith. Friend, what is your turmoil right now? God's will For you, right now, the just shall live by faith. Look to him. I'm not trying to echo some cliche. This is not a cliche. Trusting God is not a cliche. He is eminently worthy of your trust. Isn't he? You've seen his track record in your life to this point and in history in the scriptures. You've seen his track record. He is worthy of that trust. So a first element involved in doing God's will is trusting him. Here's a second one. God's will involves oppression. Bad news. Oh, sorry. Oppression. Thank you. God's will involves oppression. Oppression. Well, that that doesn't sound happy. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. What is oppression? Well, opposition. What else is involved in oppression? Probably a feeling of overwhelming dread, difficulty. How do I know that's part of God's will? Well, it's going to tell us that here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The book of 1 Peter is all about how suffering is part of the will of God in the believer's life. We've been called to this. We see it all over the pages of Scripture. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
uh, we, we know this, this is just the truth. Thankfully, Jesus said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. <laughs> Aren't you glad he said that? I am. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him. What does the rest of that say? What are these people that are being spoken of, what are they doing? They're opposing, right? They're opposing. Opposition. I keep saying oppression, sorry. Opposition. They're opposing us. Whose will are they fulfilling? Satan's. So one angle of this passage is telling us that Satan's opposing the work of the man of God. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you a man or woman of God? Please tell me you consider yourself a man or woman of God. Now, the, the specific title in 2 Timothy is talking about a, a representative, maybe a particular office, so to speak. But the, the idea tra- travels to everyone. We are to be people of God. We're to be those who are representatives of him wherever we go. And we'll find opposition, right? Opposition. Satan wants to thwart those who represent Jesus Christ. They want to, he wants to dim our testimony. He wants to dim the word of God from us. He wants to um, unveil our, our character negatively. Another angle of this is that Satan's opposition in this life is that he, he's taking that person. So he's opposing us and he's controlling them. What is the man of God to do in that situation? Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. And look at what it says in the middle of verse 25. If God perhaps, I think the old King James is peradventure, perhaps will grant them repentance so they might come to know the truth. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? We keep heralding the truth in humility, in love, in meekness, able to teach. And the, all the while we are overcoming that opposition that's coming our way. But it's not just that. It's also maybe this person who's been held captive to do Satan's will will be rescued from that place and then become a man of God who is then a heralder of that same truth. You see how that beautiful transition is? God's will is that we continue on. There'll be oppression. There'll be opposition. There'll be those that oppose us. But God's will tells us, keep doing it. Keep going. That's a second element involved in God's will. Here's a third one. God's will involves our location for ministry. Now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? God's will involves our location for ministry. Take a look at Romans chapter 1. So far, trusting God, that is a part of everyday life, isn't it? Being opposed, that's kind of a part of everyday life, isn't it? 
These are, these are everyday kinds of things. Here we come to location for ministry. Maybe that's not an everyday decision. But for Paul, in many ways it was. Because you remember, he didn't just stay in one place and minister there, and, and that was the end of it. He was moving from one place to another, doing the will of God, telling those Jews in the synagogue that they needed to come to know Christ, telling those Gentiles that there was a, a place for them in God's plan. He was preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. He went from place to place, not only testifying of these things, but strengthening the brethren. We know this, so he's, he's moving all over the place. And so he has to think consciously, where does the Lord want me? Well, and he makes this statement at the beginning and the end of the book of Romans. Take a look at Romans chapter 1 and verse, we'll start in verse 8 for context. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find my way in the will of God to come to you. You know what he's saying? I really want to come. But I can only come if that's God's will. Isn't that what he just said? So, the will of God does involve our location of ministry. Take a look at the end of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. He bookends Romans with this concept. In Romans 15, we'll start reading in verse 30. He says, Now I beg of you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea, who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy. What's the rest of it say? By the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And so he comes at the end, you know, there's one more chapter, but it's the end of this this letter. He's He's, he's given one of those amens at the end of it. He's, he's given us a, a doxological kind of a situation. May God do these things. I want to come to you. I want to come in joy by the will of God. So, doing God's will involves our sphere of ministry. You know what's interesting to me, and I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of this, so don't, don't read too far into what I'm about to say. I really appreciate, and it's really stuck in my mind many times, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is talking to the, the, the people on Athens, on Mars Hill, and there he's telling them about the unknown God, he's testifying to them, and he says that God has made from one blood all these people. And then he says he's pre-appointed our boundaries. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to spiritualize that and say, okay, God, put, you, know, you were born here, stay there and do that, because obviously Paul moved around, other people have served God and done things. But to me, it's a kind of a grounding kind of a statement. If God's placed you somewhere, unless there's some absolute, direct, clear passageway to leave and go somewhere else, you probably ought to stay put. That's just my thinking. I think it's, it's kind of a... I think it's kind of an obvious thing for me. But I think those kinds of verses solidify it in my own mind. Again, I'm not saying that if someone leaves and goes somewhere else, they're out of God's will, because God does direct and use people elsewhere. 
But the concept is this. God's will involves a location, right? Are you in the location God has you? It is, it is involved here. God's will involves trusting him. God's will involves opposition. God's will involves our location for ministry. Here's a fourth element involved in God's will. God's will involves normal parts of our routine. This is where we're going to spend a few more minutes here. God's will involves normal parts of our routine. Again, we're not talking about, oh, I have to make a decision about a vehicle, I've got a, a career path decision, a college decision, uh, who am I going to marry kind of decision, uh, what house I'm going to buy. Those are big ticket items, right? God's will oftentimes comes down to the, the nitty-gritty. Today, I woke up and I did what? It's, you you, you want to do God's will today. Doing God's will today lays the groundwork for doing God's will tomorrow. Isn't that right? Isn't that how it works? God's will doesn't come all at once. Oh, you did God's will. You're good to go. No, it's, it's every single day. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now, he's talking about bond servants. He's talking about, I think, it very naturally transitions into our employment, right? You go to work every day, if you have a job, you go to work, and who are you working for? Well, you have a supervisor, unless you're the supervisor. You've got a boss somewhere along the way. And when you do the right job, you're doing it to please them, right? Because you want them to be pleased. You want your performance to be good. You also want them to look good. You want them to have success because they're your boss and they're your employer. And you want that company to do well, don't you? You should want your company that you're working for to do well. But far beyond that, as a far more important reality, you go to work and you're serving Christ. You're doing the will of God, making that part. You're doing the will of God, striking those keys. You're doing your job, or you're doing the will of God while you're answering the phone. You need to look, I need to look at what I'm doing every day, my tasks, routine as they may be, as part of God's will. If you do God's will, in those fine areas, when the big decision comes along, are you ready to make the right decision? You're at least equipped for it, right? You're in the right direction because you're doing God's will in the little things. Faithful in the little things, responsible for greater things, right? That's how it goes. Take a look at a couple passages. We're still on this topic. God's will involves normal parts of our routine. First Peter chapter 2. 
First Peter chapter two. We'll begin reading in verse thirteen, everyone's favorite section here. I'm gonna love this. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. No! I have to pay my taxes! Excise tax, sales tax, income tax, property tax. Tax on the road, tax at the sea, tax in the air. I stay at a hotel and they charge me more tax. I go to eat and it's 8% tax for food in Rhode Island. Tax when I buy this and tax when I buy that. I buy a car and they slap tax on it just to insult me. Every year, you got to file your income taxes. Ladies and gentlemen, When you fill that tax form out with whomever or by yourself, are you doing the will of God? Or are you stealing? When we cheat on our taxes, guess what we're doing? We're not following the ordinances that God has placed over us. And so we're doing it for our sake. Look what it says here in verse 13. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak of uh, a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Well, I don't like what they do with the tax money. How many in you here do? Well, don't raise your hand, please. I don't want to know. Does it... Is, does it say you have to like what they do? Ooh, let, let's think about this. What kind of government was in control at that time? Rome. Ah, they were, they were very honorable people. Probably not. Definitely not, really. What is the point of submitting myself to these governing authorities? Doing the will of God. Why do I want to do the will of God? Because I want... Ladies and gentlemen, and you want to be a vessel of the gospel here and now. We're going to just back up in this passage to verse 11. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct, what does it say? Honorable among the Gentiles. Why would I want to do that? That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's gospel, friends. The reason we want to obey those governing authorities is because God tells us, because it's the will of God, and it empowers the gospel. 
So that those people that, that think ill of you may, by God's grace and the amazing things that he does with you and I as vessels, God may turn them from blasphemers to praisers. It's amazing. The reason I want to do God's will is because I want God to be glorified. I want to do the will of God and I want people to know Jesus. This is not a bad thing. In fact, this is a very good thing. And so it should make us willing, willing to obey in spite of our feelings because it's the will of God. Doing his work. For the Lord's sake. A little further, please take a look at chapter 3. Beginning in verse 13. Very similar concept. He's, He's really building on it in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. That when they defame you, As evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed because there's nothing that they can prove. In fact, they are disproven by our lifestyle. Verse 17, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. God says, do the will of God. That's everyday life. That's that's every day. It's the nitty gritty. Take a look at chapter 4, please. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the the flesh for the lusts of men. But for what? But for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. But what does he say? Arm yourselves with the same mind. The mind of whom? Christ. Christ. This is the will of God. It's in everyday life. It's the decisions that you make about the places you go. The things you involve yourself in. The way you talk. How you respond to the not-so-nice joke that someone says about someone else. The innuendos. The sexual things. The, the, the funny things that probably ought not be said. Corrupt communication coming out of someone else's mouth. And we just, everything's fine. No. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Doing the will of God isn't only about big-ticket items. It's about the the nitty-gritty of life. And so it involves our location, like we said. It involves opposition. It involves trusting God in difficulty and in fine times. And it involves everyday life. Here's a third question. The first question was, is the will of God knowable? Yes. What's involved in the will of God? Now, we just touched the surface. We gave you four areas there's many more things you could talk about that's in, that are involved in the will of God. But those are, those are some things we can hang, hang our hat on, right? Here's a third question. Can we accomplish God's will? 
Can you accomplish God's will? It's a very important question because if, if, if you can and God is telling you to do it, you're kind of feeling, feeling sad and lonely. Right? Wouldn't you kind of feel a little bit discouraged if God says, hey, these, this is my will, good luck. He doesn't. Let's take a look at a couple of verses. The first bullet point for your mind is God's will can be accomplished. God's will can be accomplished. Take a look at Colossians chapter 4. I love this man, Epaphras, faithful, faithful servant of God. Look at what God says about him through Paul in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you? He's a Colossian. A bondservant of Christ. He greets you. And this is what he does. He's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So here's this minister of God, Epaphras. He's one of you. He's a bondservant of Christ, and this is what he spends his time doing. He is always laboring fervently that you would stand perfect and complete in the will of God. That's a beautiful thing. Do you think God's going to fulfill that kind of prayer? Sounds like a prayer according to God's will to me. How about you? Does God want you to know his will, or is he like the cosmic Easter bunny saying, ooh, maybe it's over here. Maybe it's over here. Maybe it's up here. That somehow, sometimes, good Christians think that God is trying to hide his will on them. Like, this is so difficult, I'll never be able to figure this out. Really? Doesn't he want you to do it? So just take today, and by his grace, do his will. And guess what? Tomorrow approach the same way. And the day after? Same deal. Well, let's just look at a couple verses. They're all, they'll all be on the screen behind me. In Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, so now we have some, some import to doing God's will. Because the ones that go to heaven are the ones that do God's will. Jesus said something similar elsewhere in Mark 3.35. He says, For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So is it important to do God's will? (laughs) Can you do God's will? Well, John has a way to say it. He's, he's equally strong in this matter in 1 John 2.17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He's contrasting following the world with doing the will of God. The one who follows the world, <laughs> bad news. Because the world's passing away, you've got nothing at the end of that deal. However, doing the will of God results in life eternal. Okay, hmm. so now we're, we're feeling a little squirmy. At least if you're not, it's because you're not paying attention. If you're not squirming just a little bit, you're not paying attention. Can you know God's will? Yes. What's involved? Well, we named a few things. 
Can we accomplish God's will? Yes, yes. And in fact, it's such an important element that Jesus puts eternal life at stake. So now, now we're feeling a little intimidated. And we say, okay, I better start figuring this will of God thing out. Which is where we come with the balm. Do you like balm? When your lips are cracked and they feel like they're splitting and maybe they are, or maybe even bleeding. You put some balm on there, it feels a little bit better. I'm encouraged, and you should be too, that God's will is only accomplished by His grace. God's will is only accomplished by His grace. Take a look, please, at Hebrews chapter 13. We read it already this morning in our responsive reading. It's a funny thing about the Scriptures. The Scriptures... Try to say this nicely. The scriptures intimidate us. And the scriptures make us feel amazing. When we look at the demand of scriptures, we feel a heavy burden, don't we? This is what the law does. Law is God demands. Any demand is law. Doing God's will feels like law. It is. It's, you need to do this. So it's law, and it feels heavy, and we feel intimidated. So the Word of God gives us this, this feeling of heaviness, being, being, having the law pushed down upon us. Now, it's not actually being pushed down. It's the way we feel. But it also gives us this sense of exhilaration, because I can't do the law, but God can and has and will. And so here we come to a passage like Hebrews chapter 13 beginning in verse 20 and we say hallelujah what a savior. It says this. Now may the God of peace. So who's the subject? God is. God is the subject. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. May the God of peace make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you, friend, try to do God's will because you have X, Y, and Z written on a paper, because you know all these truths about God's Word, and you say, yes, those things are true. I'm going to do that because I'm going to be an obedient person. You are going to find yourself frustrated because you can't do it. Because those things, as beautiful as they are, are still law. Law, it's good. Did you know that? The law is good if it is used rightly. The law shows us our desperate need for God's amazing grace. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, you have a beautiful, we have a beautiful picture of God's amazing grace because it is God who makes us complete in the will of God. It is God who works in you to accomplish the will of God through Jesus Christ. And you know the result of that? Praise. Praise. Not for me. 
Not for Cornerstone Church. Not for the Clark household, the Clark name, the blank name, your name. Whose name are we looking to to praise? How is Jesus praised if I learn how to do what he's called me to do? He's not. Jesus is praised when I learn to yield myself to him so he then does that work in me. Yes, we look to do the will of God, but we look to do the will of God surrendered to the Spirit so the Spirit, through Jesus, does in us what God is calling for us to do. Are you sensing this? Can you accomplish God's will? Yes. Must you accomplish God's will? Yes. What is the pathway toward accomplishing God's will? Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, the grace of Christ. Does that make sense? God's will. It is so, it's such a a heavy thing for so many people. And they get all balled up. I want to make sure I do the will of God. I don't want to miss the will of God. The will of God. Ah, ah. You know what? It really, it's not, it's not that complicated. Yield. Yield. Surrender your will to God. Let him know what he already knows. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice. I'm following you. I'm following you. Direct my steps. Give me what I need so I can accomplish your will. Fulfill your will in me. Is that a prayer according to God's will? Does he answer prayers according to his will? Yes. And it comes down to the nitty-gritty of life. Not just the big-ticket items, ladies and gentlemen. The minutia of life. When you come home from work, ladies and gentlemen, and there are these other people in the house, a.k.a. sinners, and there starts to be some form of a rub, opportunity to yield my will to God on high and say, Lord, I need to do your will in this conversation. You've got someone call you on the phone and they're in a, in a panic and they're saying mean things to you. And you're like, oof, I don't want to deal with this. Opportunity. Lord, I need your help. I want to do your will. I want to do your will in this conversation. You need to have, a, we need to practice talking to God in the midst of our conversations with others. Lord, I don't know. I'm not sure the right thing to say here. Give me some insight. Give me some wisdom. Give me clarity. Help me to be controlled by your spirit. I want to speak words of grace. Yeah. Surrender. God's will. That's all I got for you. Let's pray together. Father, we're in need. We know we can't do your will without you. But we know, we know that through Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, grace, we will do. We will do your will when we surrender ourselves. We recognize that it's you that works in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And we seek that. We desire it for your glory's sake, for the benefit of your church that we might also herald the gospel 
every day with our words and with our life. In Jesus' name, amen.